Coming up on Put It on the Board, a recap of the White Sox week in baseball and a sweep of the Detroit Tigers capped off by a Jake Berger walk-off grand slam. The Sox finished the week strong after a very tumultuous and disappointing start with the Los Angeles Angels in town. We recap uh, every game. We talk about some roster moves and then some big picture stuff with what Jerry Reinsdorf, Jeff Passan, uh, what certain people around the White Sox organization are saying about the state of the team moving forward and a trade deadline that is kind of closing in quickly. If the Sox do sell, who might they sell? And then a farm system update with uh, Noah Schultz and Colson Montgomery, two of the White Sox top prospects. We will look at uh, what's going on with those two guys. So a lot to go over. Um an overall pretty uh, packed episode with a lot of content. So I hope you enjoy it as we put some crooked numbers up on that board. Let's do it. You can put it on the board. Yeah. Yeah. This is episode 14 of the put it on the board podcast. It is Monday, June 5th, 2023. Sam Phelan and Noah Phelan back with you as always. And uh, Noah, an up and down week for the White Sox ends up. The White Sox sweep the Detroit Tigers uh, at home. Jake Berger with a walk-off grand slam to cap off a very chaotic series. I'm interested in hearing your overall predict like feelings about this week in White Sox baseball because we'll we'll talk about it. But it felt like this Detroit series, they played really bad baseball and the Tigers played worse baseball up until that great moment where Jake Berger hits the grand slam. But overall, four and two, which is what you asked for them to do week over week. And they are currently sitting five and a half games back in the American League Central. So no real change as far as, you know, where they are in contention. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Was this a good week for the White Sox? Was this a, a meh week? I, I don't know how to feel. I mean, the outcome was good. Like, yeah, they ended up 4-2, and two, but yeah, no, I agree with you. It it felt really weird, like, walking away from this Tiger series with a sweep, because I did not feel like the White Sox deserved that at all. I mean, Friday, like, they got no hit through five innings by a dude making his major league debut that had like a six something ERA and triple a like pretty pathetic offensive performance Saturday, both teams, pathetic offensive performance, three runs scored in the game, all three on wild pitches. Like, uh, and then Sunday, you know, not much happening offensively again until that ninth inning. They had a couple of really nice at bats. The ninth inning, Yohan Moncada drew a walk, Tim Anderson with a walk, both of those really good at bats. And then, of course, Jake Berger with the big blast. But I don't know, man. I mean, outcome-wise, I feel good. Like, I'll take four and two weeks all day long. But it's it's hard for me to get too excited just because I feel like while they won a few more games than they lost this week, like, what's really different? Nothing's really changed, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a pretty a pretty solid take. Like, I mean, it's easy to ride the roller coaster and do the ups and then the downs and then the ups and then the downs. And that's what I think a lot of White Sox fans are doing this year is you lose two out of three to the Angels with the last game being the ugliest. And it's, you know, 
all hell breaks loose. Everything's on fire. Everybody's so upset. Uh, and then you win three with Detroit and it's the White Sox are back and, and it falls somewhere in the middle where I think what we have established is that until they show us otherwise and they rattle off six or seven in a row and they start to play really solid baseball over a 20 or 30 game stretch, what they are overall is a 500 baseball team that is currently handicapped by a 10 game losing streak. Like outside of that 10 game losing streak, they're a game over 500. So I think that's kind of what the Sox are it is that team. Now, if they continue this into New York and they start to beat some good teams and start to string some momentum together, then the take can change. But I think it's important too, like you mentioned, winning games is different than like taking over and dominating games. And, and I don't think any way that the White Sox played this weekend against the Tigers showed me that the White Sox are quote unquote back. It showed me that the White Sox won some games and were not the worst team on the field on the South side this weekend. So going over, yeah, just quick recap of each game. You, you have the first game against the Angels Michael Kopech, I thought, looked pretty good. He gave up the home runs in the first inning, which ended up being, you know, the difference in his start in the game, but really settled in and had plus stuff the rest of the way. The Sox kind of crawled their way back in. The Angels pull out to a bigger lead off of Liam Hendricks in his first game back, which was awesome. Um, not the result he or the team would have wanted in that moment, but the Sox dropped the first one. You bounce back in nice fashion on Tuesday. You score seven runs. Lucas Giolito does his job. You win 7-3. Wednesday is the Lance Lynn implosion that uh, kind of makes me uh, rescind my making you apologize to Lance Lynn. He gives up eight runs, gives up some absolute moonshots to Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. Uh, the Angels hit five home runs total. You lose 12 to five. It was a really, really ugly game that was kind of over before it started. So, yeah, I mean, Lance Lynn continues. I don't know how, how much we can really talk about this. We both know that he's not pitching well right now, but I think you'd agree there really isn't another option. Like, I know you've been on the DFA Lynn campaign because of what they did with Keuchel, but are we going to roll with Jesse Schultens? Like you don't have a Davis Martin ready to go right now. So what do you yeah, do? I mean, <laughs> I've been mad at Lance Lynn. Honestly, they're probably better off just holding on to him at this point. Cause like you said, there's not really somebody sitting there in AAA that we really want up here. I mean, Jesse Schultens has been fine in the, in the appearances that he's made, but is he really going to sustain that for the rest of the season? I'm not sure. If anyone kind of gets hurt and you already have DFA'd Lance Lynn, now who are you going to go to after Jesse Shulton? So they haven't really gotten themselves in a position where they can afford to do something like that. Um, I mean, I, I think Lance Lynn is what he is at this point, and they're probably just going to have to ride the wave of it and kind of hope that he can – I mean, he's probably never going to be what he was, like 2021 Lance Lynn again, but they need to hope that he can put together just kind of a – serviceable stretch here for them and just Which, not be a, an absolute liability to be fair though I mean that's what he was doing right I mean this blow up by the angels kind of you know brings his numbers back to the 6.55 ERA uh, but he did have a little stretch of 
six innings, one run, six innings, two runs, seven innings, one run. That was really solid baseball. Now, like if we can get some more of that from Lance Lynn, even if the numbers are inflated and he's not what he was, he is valuable in your rotation as a fifth starter. But you don't really have an option. Like, who would it be? Jonathan Stever, Nate Fisher? Like, I, I don't know how those guys are even doing in AAA or if they're healthy. Yeah, it's probably it's probably Nate Fisher next up after Jesse Schultons, and he's been all right in AAA, but far from a reliable option in the majors. So, yeah, yeah. there's no other options, really. So, I mean, I think for that reason, it, this is why you had Davis Martin. Like, this is what what his role on this team should have been was to fill in should there be a starter that imploded or got injured that he gets the regular starts. Having him out of the picture obviously, you know, kind of changes things a little bit as far as what you are uh, able to do. So so then you go to the Tiger series, uh, and as you mentioned, just a wacky one. The, I mean, the White Sox pitching showed up, but you're facing a Tigers lineup that is depleted without their best player in Riley Green. Um, you win three nothing on Friday night. You get a wacky two to one victory on Saturday, in which all three runs were scored on wild pit, wild pitches. And the last one is a ball that hits the home plate umpire in the face and lost. Just a, a crazy, crazy game. Uh, which again, the White Sox pitching showed up. Uh, the starting pitching was pretty good. Sunday. You get uh, a six to two win after uh, another good start by Michael Kopech. Uh, Liam Hendricks gets the win on National Cancer Survivor Day. Jake Berger, the walk-off grand slam. As Sox fans were starting to uh, come for his throat a little bit, it was it, it was a good good day on Sunday. The vibes were high. We've now ridden that into this this off day on Monday, but the Sox have a a, a tough stretch ahead, uh, and I am with you. I think things are just about where they were before. Where would things have to get to for you, for you to to lose the mentality that we have of like, all right, it's probably a 500 team. What really has changed? Like what changes that would, you know, make you adjust your philosophy there? In order to prove that they're not a 500 team. Uh, now there's a couple different questions here. For me to feel like they're not a 500 team, for me to feel like they're better than that, they need to go on a long winning streak. And I'm talking like seven, eight, nine game winning streak. I'm not sure that they're going to do that. Now, assuming that they are a 500 team, asking the question of is that good enough to win the division, I think is a completely different question. Because as we've seen, the American League Central, and we've talked about this before, is not good. It's far the, from good but can those and, two things be like because you can't go 500 the rest of the way and win the division you can't even be marginally better than 500 the rest of the way and win the division can you finish I, the season 500 and win the division i think so i don't think so i, don't I think that's I, out I, of the realm of possibilities i think it's gonna take 85 wins like at least or i mean i think that's like I think that's a pretty safe low end is to say that 85 wins is what it will take to win the AL central. Cause somebody's going to get hot. Somebody's going to be aggressive at the deadline. And if you're talking about finishing the season, 85 and 77, that's eight games over 500. That means you're 17 over the rest of the way 
from where they are right now. I mean, that's not 500 baseball. That's an insane no, I, from where they are. No, but see, I guess, I guess they don't need a long winning streak. I mean, you can break that down a little bit. Um, if they have eight weeks in a row where they go four and two, then they are over 500 by, you know, nine games or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, I guess it goes back to, you know, just taking it week to week, putting together over 500 weeks in a row. The problem is what the White Sox have been doing is putting together a four and two week followed up by a two and five week. And it's been inconsistent. And this is the same kind of energy that I got from last year's team where all year we were thinking, all right, there it is. They just won three in a row. This is where they get hot. And this is where they pull away in the division. And then they go out and get swept by a team that they should have beaten. And it's like, well, what the heck? I'm getting the same kind of vibes. Like since the 10 game losing streak ends, you know, you go out and take a two, take two out of three from solid team a Cleveland. You did that twice. You took two out of three from Cleveland twice. And then you go and lose three out of four to Kansas city. And then you get a frustrating, you know, lose, lose two out of three to the angels in a series where you looked overmatched. And then you come out and sweep the tigers. And it's like, they, they can't just, pick a direction. They're never all the way back and they're never all the way out of it. They just have to hang around right in like the peripheral of contention to kind of make you think, Oh, there's a chance. And that brings me to the big man, because isn't that what Jerry Reinsdorf wants at the end of the day? Isn't what Jerry wants for there to be a carrot dangling and for you to think there's a chance and to never really put in the investment or do do the all-in thing. Because that has been what Jerry Reinsdorf has shown White Sox fans and Bulls fans, for that matter, for the last 20-plus years. And had Jerry not lucked into Michael Jordan, he never has a championship. But, you know, whatever. Uh, semantics there. We'll forget about the Bulls because this is a White Sox podcast. There are recent comments from White Sox broadcasters, national beat writers, from inside the White Sox organization that I think are intriguing. So we have a, I, I guess let's start here. Jeff Passan reports Earlier this week, I believe it's been hard to actually track down the report, but I know there's been a lot of White Sox um, like media outlets kind of discussing it, that Jerry Reinsdorf is not down for a complete teardown or a complete rebuild, I guess you would say, which I I don't know how you define that. I, I think, you know, trading Lucas Giolito and, and Tim Anderson and Yasmani Grant, whoever that is these expiring deals would be considered a teardown. Jerry Reinsdorf does not endorse that. React to that first. Uh, like, let's just start there. How do we feel about the owner not being on board with that idea? Because I think it makes sense for a guy his age, uh, for a guy who, you know, doesn't want to go through the dog days of nobody going through the ballpark and having to root for, 18-year-old kids for whenever they'll be here. I mean, he's 87. I can see why in Jerry's mind that is not something he has interest in. 
Yeah, I I honestly would say that I'm not down for that either. I, I mean, we just sat through a teardown and a rebuild, and I'm not sure I want to see that again. But my problem lies in Jerry making a comment like that and then not fixing it because he's the one that has the power to write the checks. He is the one that... I do think these are different. I think these are different though. Okay. Cause we can get to this with the next one, right? With it with, so I guess we'll just go into it right now because this was Steve stone. Uh, earlier this week, Steve stone, white Sox color commentator goes on the radio and says the following about, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, Jerry takes these white Sox losses hard. He's not pleasant to be around right now. That was on Malian Haw. Steve Stone speaking about the White Sox chairman. And I think these two things to your, like the teardown, you can, you can say to me, all right, well, he doesn't want to do it big picture because we know Jerry likes to remain semi-competitive. Tearing this down is not semi-competitive. It is a wave of the white flag that you're not going to be relevant for the next two or three years. That's what that is. So I think that's a little bit separate. But I agree with you. Jerry making a statement like this, or I guess it's not his statement, but the idea that Jerry is so unpleasant to be around right now and really takes these losses hard. And oh boy, this organization cares and we feel it as much as you do, fans, is so disingenuous. And like, I, I haven't seen something that has made me this mad in a long time from the organization themselves. Because it's what you said. You write the checks. If you didn't want to lose games and take them so hard and be unpleasant to be around, maybe you shouldn't have cut payroll after going 81 and 81. That feels like pretty basic stuff. If I'm Steve Cohen, who I heard is flipping chairs in meetings with Buck Showalter right now, pissed because the New York Mets are around 500, that checks out. You wrote the checks. You brought in the players. You paid the manager. You did all the things that you were supposed to do as an owner and a fan of the team to make them win, and it's not working. Jerry cannot say the same thing. You cannot cut payroll after going 81 and 81 and then throwing your hands up and saying, well, I'm miserable that my team's not winning the division because what else did you expect? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's one thing for Rick Hahn to say he's frustrated, and he's probably frustrated for more reasons than just this isn't working. He's probably frustrated that he couldn't spend the money that he wanted to spend and that he couldn't hire the manager he wanted when the time came. And there's many reasons for Rick Hahn to be frustrated, and I do believe him when he says that he's very frustrated with how this has turned out. But the old man has absolutely no right to say that when he – First of all, went over his GM's head and brought in his old buddy to manage the team right when they were supposed to be competing and then cut payroll in the contention window. Like you said, he bailed out on the opportunity to bring one of two franchise changing players to Chicago. I mean, the whole Bryce Harper thing is still just ridiculous. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I think fans realize, I don't, I don't know if, Outside of the organization, people realize how the Bryce Harper would be in Chicago. Like, he would be everyone's favorite player. The entire stadium would be full of Bryce Harper jerseys if he were playing right field for the White Sox. 
it, it was just it was a golden opportunity for Jerry Reinsdorf to establish himself as an owner that wants to win baseball games, and he balked at the price, and he has balked at the price every offseason since then. He's balked at the idea of having to spend money to make the team better. So for him to sit here and say, I'm frustrated that we're not winning is just, it's a joke. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. Like I don't get, I don't doubt that he's frustrated. We know that he wants but like, it is a, what the heck did you expect type of moment? Like it is a, I just, I don't understand this organization. I really don't like, I, I don't know how this, how you don't see the logic or I guess the lack of logic in what you're saying or the disconnect between your actions and words, because like top down, the White Sox consistently say one thing and do another. Jerry Reinsdorf says he's not happy with the way that these losses are going. Steve Stone says he's not pleasant to be around right now. Meanwhile, Jerry cuts payroll and shows that winning, he doesn't really care all that much. He's showing that Jerry cares about turning a profit and about his business. And does he make money doing his business? Yes. Is he a good good businessman? Yes. Does he care about the product on the baseball field and the fan base? No, no, no. Affir- like Affirmative, no. Absolutely not, no. Rick Hahn says... You know, this the result of this season is not okay, and we need to make some some changes and we need to win your trust back. And they make no changes to win our trust back. In fact, they go in the opposite direction and immediately tank right at the start of the season basically any chance they had of fixing things or making the playoffs. Pedro Grafol says, We're gonna prepare to kick your ass every night and makes the same fundamental mistakes Tony La Russa made in his bullpen management early on in the poor defense the White Sox played. And it's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. So this was just the tip of the iceberg for me um, on a big organization-wide issue that is the White Sox not putting their money literally where their mouth is. Moving on. You mentioned that the White Sox need to pick a direction on the field in a very literal sense, that they can't just pick one direction and go that way. But they're going to have to, from a philosophy standpoint, in about, I don't know, six weeks, maybe sooner, depending on how quickly some of these teams want to move and how quickly the market moves, because... The trade deadline is rapidly approaching. And if you're five and a half back, are you a buyer? Are you a seller? If you're three and a half back, but still well under 500, are you a buyer? Are you a seller? I don't think many people know how the White Sox are leaning. My gut, Noah, tells me they buy if they're anywhere close to contending. Reason being, I mentioned it on our episode with White Sox Dave. I think executives with their jobs on the line are more inclined to be bold and reckless in order to try and save and get some security with some wins. So I think if the White Sox are five under 500, but only three and a half back in the central with, a you know, at the all-star break, 
you might see Rick Hahn make some questionably, questionably aggressive moves to immediately solve the White Sox problems and make a run at the division. That's my gut with where this organization lies. And I think Jeff Passan's, you know, what he says about Jerry would affirm that. I agree with you. I, you know, I've seen some speculation, uh, just on the Twitter, the recent, in recent days, just about, you know, what are the socks going to do? And some people are seeming to think that they're going to buy. And I've seen other people that are talking about how dumb that is and why would they do that? But I think if you're anywhere near contending for this division, they're going to be buyers for that very reason, because Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams both know that their jobs are not guaranteed for next year. And the uh, Kenny way Williams, they... Kenny Williams, I think it kind of might be. Well, uh, maybe Rick Hahn, I do think is feeling some heat because yes. Kenny and the... has had the benefit of being tucked away. He's not speaking to the media. He's not really hearing the noise from the fans as loudly as Rick is. So uh, I do think Rick Hahn's job is in question beyond 2023. And the only thing, the Go only ahead. thing that Rick can guarantee do that's going to get him some points and give him a really good chance at coming back next year is winning this year. And, you know, a lot of baseball people kind of subscribe to the philosophy that if you get in the playoffs, you have a chance to win the World Series. So, you know, if I'm Rick Hahn and I'm looking at a baseball team that is several games under 500, but is within striking distance of the division knowing that if this team misses the playoffs for the second year in a row, there's a very good chance that I'm out of a job. I'd buy two. So whether that's the smart thing for the organization I, moving forward, so, not, I think that's what's going to happen if they don't go, assu- assuming they don't, you know, go five and 13 in this next 18 games and just dig themselves an even bigger hole. Assuming they kind of tread water. I think that's where it's trending. Yeah, so we have uh I don't I do disagree with I don't think they need to make the playoffs for Rick to be safe. I think they need to be close. Like I I think if you lose the division by 3 games and things get marginally better at the end of the year, I don't really see a whole lot changing. Where I do think Rick is in trouble is if this goes the other way and if the White Sox finish with 74 wins and you're 14 games under at the end of the season and you you know are are not in contention in September that's when this thing starts to turn on Rick Hahn here's the other question I would have for you so we said you know if they're within reach of the division they're buyers what is that number let's say it's you know a week before the deadline the market's starting to pick up this is when players are getting moved you're getting calls on a number of guys what is the number that the white Sox, like i think there's a a buy window i think there's a sell window i think there's a stay put window at least on some of the bigger picture guys but where do you think it is for them to be aggressive That's a really tough call because, you know, it's always tough when you're kind of chasing and other teams are making moves at the deadline too. So it's not just the Sox, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're five games back nearing the deadline, but Minnesota's also made 
trades to get better. And then it's like, okay, well, we got to be aggressive, but we also got to, you know, do more to compensate because Minnesota just got better too. So I'm not sure there's a hard number in my mind. I would say if the Sox are like in a similar position to where they are now, where they're five, six games back, you're probably yep. looking at making an aggressive move to buy. Um, I think that's the, I think the number for me is six. I think it's six. I think if you are within six games of the division, I think the White Sox will look, not saying this is what they should do, right? This is where I think their organizational mindset is at, that at six or better, they want to make a run at it. If you're eight, nine back, I don't think they would. Yeah, I don't think Jerry or Kenny or even Rick could sign off on that in good conscience and and faith, knowing that it was going to be, you know, an unfruitful endeavor that can mortgage the future. That that's even worse off, especially if you're Kenny or somebody that might stick around. Um, well, if here's you, my question for you. Yeah, what do you have to trade? in a move to get aggressive. I mean, outside of Colson oh, Montgomery, but who to be I think, aggressive. Uh, yeah. Like if the Sox are going to go get a, a bigger name player to try and be aggressive and get back into contention outside of Colson Montgomery, who personally I'm very high on. I think Colson Montgomery is going to be a very good player. He reminds me a lot of Corey Seager. I know that's the comparison that a lot of people have brought up, but I really see those. <laughs> I see those similarities watching him play. Outside of him, you know, who do you really have that other teams are going to covet? That other teams are going to be like, this is the this is the trade package that I want to trade this good player to you. You well, know, I, I just, I'm not sure the Sox I don't, have that. Really, listen, I don't think I don't think the White Sox are going to be in a landing spot for an elite talent at the deadline. Like, I don't think they're going to land the Juan Soto of the deadline. They're not going to grab substantial headlines but we do see all the time competent and decent major leaguers are dealt for you know overall lottery ticket prospects and, and so uh, they will not solve all of their issues but can they add some help to the bullpen can they add a second baseman that that should play every day can they add, you know, a backup catcher that's not Sebi Zavala or depth to the starting rotation? Like, those are the things. At the end of the day, the White Sox are going to live and die with Luis Robert, Eloy Jimenez, Andrew Vaughn, Tim Anderson, you know, the core that we know is here and, and you know, that they've invested in. But what can you do around them to give yourself a better shot and not have incompetence in certain areas? And so I do think they have enough to make trades in that front. I mean, if you're trading Colson Montgomery, it is for a big fish. Uh, I think if you were going for a big fish, you could also throw out Oscar Colas as somebody who's a big league ready talent for a team that might be closer to competing and looking for an older prospect that has a lot of upside, uh, Christian Mena, Sean Burke, Noah Schultz, future guys that, you know, you could get something for, but I don't necessarily think it's an issue of having enough because I don't see them being in a bidding war with a team like the major, major prospect goes to 
the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Padres, the surefire playoff teams that have the best prospect pools. That's just how it works. So the White Sox aren't going to play in that market necessarily. But uh, I am glad that you asked what some possibilities are because Bleacher Report came out with a list today uh, of the 25 best candidates to be traded or uh, most sought after trade deadline candidates. Have you seen this list at all? I think is a good, good place to start. I have not. Okay. You have not seen this list. I want you to go ahead and take a guess then at how many Chicago white Sox you think made the top 25 in the eyes of bleacher report. Hmm. I'll say five. Five is correct. Tim Anderson at number two of the second biggest name that would be on the free agent or on the trade market. Lucas Giolito was number three. Mike Clevenger at number 13. Joe Kelly at number 19 and 23, a very sneaky one here. Keenan Middleton, who has a 1.33 ERA for the White Sox. Uh, this was an interesting note. If we take salary into consideration, you could easily call Middleton one of the top 10 trade targets of the summer as he will be owed about a quarter of the million dollars, about a quarter of a million dollars after the deadline. That's the same amount of money Aaron judge makes every single game. So uh, if you are a team looking for some financially affordable bullpen help, Keenan Middleton is a, a target that the White Sox could cash in on if they do decide to go that direction. Some of the other names on this list, uh, just to kind of give you an idea of what could be out there, Marcus Stroman, Jorge Soler, Glaber Torres, Cody Bellinger, Michael Lorenzen, Conforto, Alex Cobb, Eduardo Rodriguez, Josh Bell. Um, I'm trying to see if there's somebody on here that I think would be a really good fit for the White Sox. Aroldis Chapman, perhaps, I guess, is a a bullpen piece they have on here. Elias Diaz, I guess he's not really a backup catcher. Um, Buck Farmer, you could throw into the bullpen, uh, another name that's being floated out. So there are some options with... Uh, yeah, I guess we've got like Tyler O'Neill, depending on how some of these teams go. But those are five interesting names. And I do think the White Sox have a middle ground here, Noah, where they might not buy and they might not necessarily sell, but they might sell a Keenan Middleton or a Mike Clevenger or somebody that they know isn't coming back to them next season and can get good value. I mean, doing the relief pitcher swap for a higher end prospect than you ever invested into the player is an overall positive for the franchise. So you have to take those deals if they're presented to you. Yeah. I think that's something that happens at deadlines sometimes. Um, and it's not really a possibility that like media and the fans talk about, which is like, the possibility of both buying and selling at the trade deadline. I mean, you kind of look at like what the Red Sox did last year. They like traded away a couple of their major league players and they also acquired a couple of major league players. So it was more of like a reshuffling than it was like selling or buying. Even so the White Sox, right? You trade Jake Diekman away 
for, I got to trade Reese McGuire away for Jake Diekman. And it's kind of like a, this need versus that need. Let's reshuffle and see like, you know, if this is more helpful to both teams and, you know, that's a possibility for the Sox too. Maybe it is Keenan Middleton goes and the White Sox are getting a veteran second baseman back. That's having a, an up year. And you feel like can, you can plug into your roster every day, or maybe it's for a, a starting pitcher that gives you some, some depth at that spot. Like these are all possibilities, but another thing that you might not consider, like the white Sox might not be on board for a fire sale, but what happens if you're six back of the division, it's July 18th and somebody's calling you with a a package. That's got a couple top one hundreds for Lucas Giolito. And you know you're not going to pay him this offseason. And you know you have a shot at the division, but that this is the best thing for the organization. Those are the questions that I think are going to be really interesting to see how Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams maneuver in this thing, even if it is a Keenan Middleton or a Joe Kelly or a, a rental bullpen arm that helps you right now, but the offer is too good to pass up. Can you still pass it up? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, Ken Rosenthal put out an article last weekend, I think, um, basically just talking about how starting pitching especially is going to be very highly sought after this trade deadline and how there are not really a lot of options. And that could be something that plays to the White Sox favor because you have two starters, three if you count Lance Lynn, who are their contracts up at the end of the year, and they're probably not going to be back next year. So, you know, you potentially have three starting pitcher trade chips in a market that's going to be very heavy on buyers for starting pitching with not a lot to offer, and that could lead to some teams to overpay. So maybe like you said, you know, maybe there's a bidding war for Lucas Giolito, who's been the most consistent starter on the White Sox so far this year. Maybe there's a bidding war. Maybe a team offers you a couple top 100s, like you said, and the White Sox are like, you know, we weren't really looking to sell, but this is a really good trade. And like, it'll give us a farm system boost. And maybe one of these top 100s is a starting pitcher that's going to be ready next year. So, you know, it's something that you have to consider. Um, I think I think the White Sox should be in listening mode on both buying and selling. That's the approach that I, I would take. Not only are you listening to offers on your players, but I think you should be doing due diligence on other teams' players in idea of buying and just see what the asking price is. You know, they should, they should keep all options open at this point. Yeah. And something else, right? Like when you're looking at a Lucas Giolito trade, you kind of mentioned like the buying and selling at the same time approach, but like, is there a world where the white Sox trade for a veteran starting pitcher to give them a fifth starter to then unload Lucas Giolito for young talent and is that young talent almost major league ready talent or major league ready talent? Like, like, what are you looking at and how creative can you get if you're Rick Hahn at trying to find a piece that can help you in a trade, but help you more immediately than 2026 or what some of these, you know, young guys are currently projected to do. So you have to get creative though. That would be my overall sort of take on it. Uh, as we get to see what the White Sox are looking to do to this farm system. We do have some farm system updates too, Noah, uh, because 
Number one, Colson Montgomery, that prospect who we mentioned, the number 27 prospect in all of baseball in the preseason top 100, who we have not seen play minor league baseball so far this year. And it's been very odd not having Colson Montgomery box scores to check every day. And it's making me a little uneasy, hoping that he is going to come back and be as strong as he was when he went down and that his stock will continue to rise. But Colson Montgomery is back. He has been uh, placed on a rehab stint with the ACL White Sox as of today, Monday, June 5th. Uh, and we should be seeing some Colson Montgomery in the lineup for I don't know, Birmingham. Are we going to assume? Is it Winston-Salem? Like, where is Colson going to go here? Uh, I would think Birmingham. That's where he ended last year. But um, they also did that, like, Project Birmingham thing where they kind of threw everybody there. And then some guys did end up starting the year at lower levels. So um, one of the two. It'll either be Winston-Salem or Birmingham. I'm not sure. Really struggled at Birmingham in that Project Birmingham, but was great at both Kannapolis and Winston-Salem. So um, hopefully we can see him excel at that next level. He's 21, so kind of right at that spot where, you know, ready for double A in the eyes of, of a lot of organizations to start getting him developed for, you know, hopefully an imminent debut in 2024, I think would be the goal for Colson Montgomery at some point next season. Uh, Noah Schultz, speaking of debuts, made his professional debut uh, this weekend. I believe it was Friday that Noah Schultz pitched for the Kannapolis Cannonballers, the first time we've seen him pitch while with the Chicago White Sox. Uh, and he was, as advertised, two innings, one hit in the start, threw almost 30 pitches, no hits, five strikeouts. So, or I actually think one hit, five strikeouts, no walks. So that is the line for Noah Schultz. I don't know if you got a chance to look at any of the video of some of his uh, highlights, but the stuff looks sharp, man. Sitting 96 with the fastball, locating pretty well, attacking hitters, had good control, and overall, pretty impressive for, uh, you know, uh, what is he, a 19-year-old kid right now? Yep, he's 19. Um, Yeah, I saw some of the videos. I saw some of the tweets from... um, some of the future Sox contributors, some other people that got to see it in person. Um, and they said that he was, he was looking sharp. The fastball was 96, 97, like you said. Um, he also mixed in the slider. And of course the no walks is huge because a lot of the things that you see with young pitchers in particular with these 18, 19 year olds is struggling with that command. So if Noah Schultz is able to keep that command harnessed and, keep the walks to a minimum. I think that he's going to be set up for greatness here, but I'd like to see him uh, kind of build up the stamina again and start going deeper into games, but not nothing really to be too upset about with that debut. It, it was, it was definitely a good sight to see. Yeah. I mean, it's not unusual to see some of these guys, you know, especially that young still kind of building up their, uh, their, stamina and some of these starts like two inning three inning starts in the minors are not uncommon at all uh i'm just kind of excited to have guys that mean something playing in these minor league games again like i guess oscar colas at charlotte has been like worth monitoring and he's been fine he's hitting 302 currently with you know only one home run which is kind of an interesting oscar colas thing and over 100 at bats in charlotte but the average has been there for him, 
But having Brian Ramos return and then Colson Montgomery and Noah Schultz both in games will now have the White Sox top four prospects playing in the system and give fans reasons to check on the MILB app um, because that's kind of what we have to do when you're nine games under 500. But I digress. Um, Noah, last kind of wrapping up the show here before we go into the standings and the upcoming schedule, we've got a new segment for you. We're kind of, we were kicking around some names for this, but I think we're going to go with a state that stat. We're going to try and run this maybe every week, maybe every other week. I don't know, but I want to come up with some more games uh, for you and I to play. I'm going to go first this week. And the way that this is going to work is I am going to find the most obscure White Sox fun fact stat weird stat unbelievable stat that i can find ask you it and see if you are able to fill in the blank or finish the stat for me uh see if it it rings a bell for you or um whatever so here's my fun fact this is the the honorable mention gary sanchez has three home runs since sebi zavala's last hit uh in case that because I've been on the uh, Sebi Zavala needs to go train for a bit now, so I did want to get that one out here. But here is my. Uh, I think I think if I remember, you said he'd be your fan favorite this year. I did, uh, I did, and I have <laughs> never been more wrong because I'm sick and tired of watching him step up to the plate. I, yeah, I thought we were I, right. He hit that early home run in Houston. He got into the fight with the Pirates, and I said, "Look at the Sebi Zavala prediction. The man, he's the man," and it has just been downhill ever since like he's not a major league hitter right now yeah i see a lot of people like oh but he's a good game caller and honestly i don't care i mean being a good game caller that's great but he's not a good enough game caller to justify his 16 ops plus like (laughs) that's that's not a major league player i'm sorry and backup catcher is not the most important position in the world but when you have a guy like Carlos Perez sitting in Charlotte who's played well in AAA, who's younger and has more upside, like it's time to give him the at-bats. I at least see what he can do because I don't think he can be worse at this point. Yeah, I and I mean there's a lot that goes into right like how is Sebi with the pitching staff whatever that like I'm sure the White Sox have some analytics on or some pitcher testimonies on or whatever. And, and I don't have all of that information, but he hasn't stood out to me defensively. And he certainly stood out to me for all the wrong reasons at the plate. Um, here is my state that stat of the week. Uh, the Chicago White Sox are the only team in Major League Baseball without a home run from a left-handed hitter against a left-handed pitcher in the last two years. It has been over two years since the last time a White Sox lefty went deep off of a lefty. Can you name the last White Sox player to do so? So this would have been 2021. Um... I feel like you're asking me this because the answer is Leary Garcia. It is not Leary Garcia because I'll remind you, Leary Garcia is a switch hitter. So he does not battle. Oh, that's fair. Yep. That's a good point. Um, 
a lefty that homered off of a lefty. Well, I know it wasn't Gavin Sheets because all of Gavin Sheets' career home runs are against righties. Um, Yoan Mokata's a switch hitter. Grandal's a switch hitter. Was it like Brian Goodwin? Uh, it was not. It was on April 6th, 2021. Brian Goodwin was not yet with the White Sox. Jake Lamb was not yet with the White Sox. Uh, it was the forgotten man of the rebuild, Zach Collins, in Seattle, uh, in the first week of the 2021 season, the last time a White Sox left-handed hitter went yard off of a left-handed pitcher. Seems impossible, but true. And that is your State That Stat of the Week. It's a good one. I thought it was a good one. Uh, good, no. No. Interesting, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Like a good State That Stat of the Week, but I feel like most of these obscure stats that I find are going to just be wildly negative things. Uh, yeah. I, I did kind of tease you. I actually think you were either spot on or pretty close to on about the last time the White Sox had a walk-off or how many walk-off grand slams they've had in their history. Jake Berger, I believe, is number six or seven. Uh, yeah, I uh, I read that after the game yesterday. So the last I did one, that answer. The last one, you remember it, I'm sure. The last one before Jake Berger? Yeah, I, this is one of my favorite games of my White Sox fandom. Hmm. We got two state that off the top of my head because you can't. Off the top of my head, I'm not sure. I thought you'd had seen this for sure. Uh, It was Grant Balfour and the Tampa Bay Rays giving up a opposite field grand slam with a over enthusiastic hawk to Jose Abreu in his rookie season into the visitors' bullpen. I remember that game very, very much. And that moment when I knew. The White Sox had a guy in Jose Abreu. I think that was in April or early May of 2014. Um, I remember that home run. I didn't realize it was a walk-off. Yeah, walk-off grand slam. I I remember that one very, very clearly. That was, uh, yeah, that was kind of the Jose Abreu coming out party for me because he took a while to hit those first home runs. I, I think he hit it in Colorado. I'm coming with all the Jose Abreu. Number I, His first career home run, I believe, was against the Rockies. And then the floodgates kind of opened. And when he hit that one, it was like a, it was like a two-out, like, uh, I believe it was like a two-out grand slam off of Balfour. Balfour had been talking smack earlier in the inning, and it was just like, a, come on, one time. And got one over the head of Desmond Jennings. I'll throw that out there. Got into the Sox, or the, the Rays bullpen, and the fireworks got set off and I was like, all right, the Sox have a dude. Jose Abreu's a dude. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah. a roller coaster Back during that electric 90 loss 2014 season. Huh? That season, I will say that season <laughs> was fun for Jose Abreu and Jose Abreu only. Like I had a blast watching him that year of being like the white Sox have a rookie of the year. Huh? Like this doesn't happen. Uh, and you know, you watched it for that season and then, and Chris sale, I think he had a couple fun starts or like couple that uh, those were the two guys though I was watching for is how's Jose Bray and Chris sale doing, but, uh, Noah, that's all we got this week. Uh, four and two week. Like we said, we have to, uh, like I mentioned off the top, the white Sox are five and a half back in the division. I don't believe anybody in the central Oh, uh, played today. I don't know if you actually, the Tigers did play. They lost to the Phillies. Kansas city dropped one. 
uh, and nothing from Minnesota or Cleveland. So Cleveland is in second place at three and a half back after that Tigers loss. Minnesota still out in front at 31 and 29. White Sox five and a half back and Kansas City in the basement. Uh, the upcoming schedule off today on a Monday, obviously Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. It is a big test in Yankee Stadium for the White Sox. They then return home to face the red hot 33 and 28 Miami Marlins, who are, I believe, currently in the playoff picture. Yeah, they are in the playoff picture in the National League. So uh, a tough week for the Sox and a difficult stretch of games coming up. Episode next week, we'll see. I don't know if we're going to record one because you, sir, are getting married this weekend. Uh, I will obviously be at the wedding and traveling. And uh, so I'll be in Washington on on Sunday and then uh, flying back basically all day with multiple connections on Monday. So I, I don't we might have to take one off. It might be two weeks from now, the last time we talk in a podcast format and see where this team is. So a lot could change between now and then. Do you have anything else for the people before we head out? I don't think so. Uh, the next 18 games are against teams that are over 500, except for the series in Seattle against the Mariners, who are only one game under 500. So the next time the White Sox play an under 500 team that is not the Seattle Mariners is uh, June 30th when they play the Oakland Athletics. So the rest of June is going to show us whether the Chicago White Sox are going to get back into this thing or not. Um, Perhaps for the better. a lot more. Yeah. Perhaps for the better, right? I mean, this you'd rather them find out now than beat up on some cupcakes now and not sell just to get embarrassed in August and September. So uh, we are going to find out. Uh, Two things for the people. Number one, Vote Jake Berger to the all-star team in Seattle. I need to see Bergatron there. So vote Jake. Take Jake to Seattle. We'll be championing that on this podcast all the way until the Midsummer Classic. And number two, do not, under any circumstances, stop putting crooked numbers up on that board. We'll see you.